This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. Even if you're not a scientist or mathematician or technologist, such as myself, I've actually tried to stay as far away as from a math problem or science question since the 10th or 11th grade. But even if it's not your forte, there's no denying that science holds a special place in the American imagination. I grew up with scientists. My dad was a physicist and still is a practicing physicist in the semiconductor industry. He worked for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, even had the opportunity to work on projects for NASA. My older brother, a physician in his own right, is also the chief of surgery at the University of Miami for orthopedic surgery. And that sense of being able to build and create and tinker and discover and invent was always incredibly inspiring. Whether you worked in science or not, when you took a look at what NASA was doing up in the skies and out in deep space, or you had a friend that had an incredible breakthrough, or you just saw somebody claim that they just got a patent on an idea, that sense of novelty, that sense of discovery, it's really been core to who we are as humans. But unfortunately, a lot of the investments that make that happen, whether it's research funding for national science grants or policy advising to presidents of the United States about how best to encourage more scientific growth in this environment and in this business climate. Unfortunately, a lot of that's been shifted to the wayside. For the last several months, almost closing on two years, the current administration has not actually invested in science advisors and in fact kept the top post relatively vacant for quite some time. Last week, that all changed. And joining the pod today is an incredibly talented, special friend and guest, Kumar Garg, who led White House policy for science and technology as a deputy director under the last administration. He's going to join us and discuss why science actually matters to America's identity and what Trump's pick for the new top science post actually means for science in this administration going forward. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. When it comes to science and technology, this White House has largely ignored it. In fact, President Trump hadn't filled the top science advisor position in his own administration since becoming president over 19 months ago. Trump is the first president in over half a century since President John F. Kennedy, who hadn't nominated a science advisor in the first year of his term. The head of the Office of Science and Technology Policy, or OSTP, usually assumes the role of science advisor, but also uses its unique perch from the White House to coordinate investments, policy actions, and policy recommendations to the president on everything from matters from forward-looking immigration policies that can help recruit the best and brightest scientists to come to our shores, all the way to investments to advance manufacturing, and even looking at the work and the world ahead through the use of drone-based technologies or autonomous vehicles. But despite that staggering 19-month vacancy, last week, that all changed. With heat waves and wildfires scorching on the western U.S., the United States government has officially nominated meteorologist Kelvin Jojemeyer, as an expert on extreme weather, to lead the White House Office of Science and Technology, finally finally putting a plug in that 19-month deafening silence of that lack of top science minds within the president's administration. If confirmed by the Senate, Jojemeyer would end the longest vacancy in the 42-year history of the post— and currently, the highest-ranking science official in the White House, Michael Krasios, a 31-year-old political appointee and science grad who is deputy assistant at OSTP, would remain on in a deputy advising role to the new nomination pick. But particularly at a time where this administration has encouraged its own Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, to scrub its own documents, research findings, and publications of even references to climate change or climate science, and particularly at a time where even Trump's own nominees to various posts throughout his administration, including the Departments of Energy or Homeland Security, have suggested that carbon dioxide or CO2 emissions have had no impact on humans, 
what does the nomination of this new science advisor actually mean for the state of science, not just in the country, but frankly, in this administration as well? In order to help us unpack that very notion, we're thrilled to have today a special guest on American Enough, the former White House OSTP Deputy Director, Kumar Garg. Kumar helped supervise a staff of 20 within the White House with portfolios ranging from advanced biotechnology to entrepreneurship to space policy and advanced manufacturing, even nanotechnology and how to use prize challenges like XPRIZE or other similarly situated models to motivate more tinkering, more curiosity, and more discovering in America. In fact, Kumar single-handedly helped shape science and technology policy for nearly eight years in the White House, wearing various hats, but ultimately being able to command nearly multi-million to billion dollars worth of investments in STEM investment campaigns, actually coordinating major investment initiatives that were announced at a few of Barack Obama's own State of the Unions, and creating iconic events such as the White House Science Fair and the White House Maker Fair. A true treat for us to have Kumar on the podcast today, not just because he's a genuinely good guy, but potentially because he's also been able to understand how you actually use the playbook that was so successful in committing an administration under President 44 to robust science investments to even trying to take that playbook and bring it outside of government and experimenting how we can still continue to make America a leading voice in scientific discovery, even outside of the perch of government or even without strong leadership from that government. Kamar Garg, thanks so much for joining American Enough. Thank you. And thank you, Vikram, for having me on. Uh, I'm, I don't know if your audience knows, but Vikram and I were colleagues in the White House. And uh, that long list of accomplishments he listed, you know, we got that work done working together for President Obama. So uh, it's great to be on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and I think that's that's a pretty good area to start because um, before we, we hop to the news of the new science advisor nomination, I kind of want to just get your vision on how that sense of teamwork working across, you know, different colleagues you had in the White House or across several federal agencies or even across private sector partners, um, how all that work got done. And specifically, um, you know, before you get to the tactics, it, it has to come down to this general vision of of what makes America, America exceptional in terms of its ideas and values. And I'll start just by referencing a line that President Obama delivered um, at one of the White House science fairs, I believe this one was in 2016, where he's telling a, a room full of really curious, really thoughtful and really sharp students, um, mostly, uh, you know, it's ranging between the elementary school and high school age, in which he says, whether you're fighting cancer, combating climate change, feeding the world or writing software code that leads to additional change, you're, you're sort of sharing in this essential spirit of discovery that all of America is built on. So in the same way that you just mentioned the work you were able to achieve was due to teamwork. A lot of scientific gain and advancement in this country is also based on borrowed work, investing in the disclosure of a discovery, uh, being able to share best practices with other scientists or other technologists. And I guess I'm just, my, my top line question is, how does the approach of a president in being able to invest in science and technology policy, share that model, share those principles, share that innovation strategy with the world, impact the way that science is actually rooted in America? Is it really a president that, that makes a big difference there or the government that makes a big difference? Or is it just really the onus on those minds who are curious and who want to discover? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I would I would break this up into a couple of different parts about um, at least the way I think President Obama saw it. And I I think the place to start is just the context in which you got elected, right? So President Obama comes in and is elected in the midst of a historic economic downturn, you know, losing 800,000 jobs a month and uh, a financial crisis that at the time was keeping everybody up at night because they thought it might foretell the second depression. And even in that context, I think President Obama wanted to make sure that we were building public policies that built and strengthened America for the long term. And, you know, the analogy, I forget which speech he did this, but there's an analogy he made to uh, the work that President Lincoln did 
uh, during the Civil War that actually created the foundations for American science and tech prosperity over the next uh, 50 years. So in the midst of the Civil War, President Lincoln actually helps inaugurate the National Academies of Science. He helps, you know, uh, make major advances on the transcontinental railroad. He, uh, you know, makes uh, so there's major, uh, you know, sort of support for patents and and uh, the invention culture. And this is all happening while America is uh, going through one of its hardest periods. But President Lincoln felt the need to do that because uh, part of what we are always doing is writing our paragraph and a longer story. And so President Obama is faced with this major, major calamity in 2009. But even in those early months, he uh, started to sort of articulate a vision for why science technology was a fundamental building block of American prosperity and the, Amer and the American way. And I think he did it in a couple ways. I think one was, I think at a core level, he sort of believed that uh, there's, you know, that we live in a fact-based world and we need to make policies on, on the basis of facts. And so a big part, uh, a big reaction that he was responding to was concerns that happened during the Bush administration about on issues where things got heated, politically heated, uh, scientists getting silenced. So there's a major uh, political dispute over um, whether the EPA should regulate greenhouse gases. And the Bush administration uh, was found to have been doctoring some of the scientific findings that were being created and not uh, making those public and required a major court case that went all the way up to the Supreme Court uh, that said that actually the EPA was under legal obligation to regulate greenhouse gases. So a lot of this actually happened during the Bush administration. And so President Obama actually ran on putting science in its rightful place. And a big part of that was to let the science speak for itself. You know, if you don't think we should do anything about climate change because you have other goals and priorities, well, that can be a policy and pol politics conversation. But we should have a shared sense of what is actually happening in the world. So I think that was one. The second was that, you know, the president in his first 100 days was actually the first president since JFK to actually go to the National Academies and give a major speech on science and tech. And, you know, this is in the midst of the financial crisis. And he actually talked about how important it is that we invest in the fundamental building blocks of American of the American economy. And so that um, half of that speech actually ended up being about uh, math and science education and STEM education, because he said, look, if we're going to you know, uh, if we're going to uh, invent the future and America has been uh, a leading advanced economy, you know, the way we're going to build future prosperity is actually by investing in those next generation industries. We have to invest in our in our kids and our people. And um, and so we, you know, actually started to build what eventually became our STEM campaign to get more kids excited and prepared for STEM skills right in the midst of 2009. You know, at the same time, we made major investments in the in the, the Recovery Act in advanced clean energy technologies. You know, we saw over the course of the Obama administration major reductions. You know, we set this goal to have a dollar watt solar energy uh, over the over 10 years. And at the time when the Department of Energy set that, they said no way could we get to a dollar watt uh, energy in a in a decade. And we actually got to that in seven years. And so. Um, you know, a lot of what we're seeing now in the rise of wind power and solar power and renewables came because of major investments we made on the R&D side early on in the administration. And so part of, I think, a second sort of uh, view that the president had, that President Obama had, was just this kind of focus on long-termism, right? Invest in the things that are important now, even if the immediate political situation is kind of hair on fire about one thing, because you know, we're playing, we're playing the long game. And then I think the third part that, you know, is that the president just sort of enjoyed the sense of discovery and wonder that comes with science. It's why he loved uh, meeting the incredible students that we had at the White House Science Fair. It's why he would always say after every meeting of PCAS, which was the President's Council of Advisors in Science and Tech, was that like, I could talk to these, you know, these folks all day long because, <laughs> you know, they're, they're grappling with interesting questions. They're trying to figure out you know, how do we unlock the mysteries of the human mind, tackle, you know, diseases like dementia that are coming? Or how do we figure out um, how we become a multi-planetary species? Or how do we figure out how we um, deal with plastics pollution in the ocean? 
And so, you know, there's also just a, a sense of opportunity and uh, kind of roll up your sleeves that I think is uh, very fundamentally American that is imbued in the science and tech space. And, you know, when it comes to this week's announcement, that very notion of um, building blocks or respect for building blocks and trying to understand, you know, at its core, what type of world we're living with, what kind of environmental challenges are we grappling with, what kind of um, seismic shifts in the way that we invest in space policy are we dealing with, what kind of new advanced manufacturing technology should we be investing in. It, it does seem that if that is the goal, certainly reflected um, not just by the last president, but certainly from our country and both government and non-government actors for quite uh, many generations now, for a few generations now, sorry, um, it does seem that the pick um, the atmospheric scientist, Calvin Meyer, who is currently the vice president for research at the University of Oklahoma, um, could be a, a serious thinker because by all indications of his pedigree, um, it does seem that Trump would be investing in a climate or environmentally focused mind. Um, he's forecasted uh, st uh, storm – sorry, he's done a lot of research on storms as well as storm forecasting for nearly three decades now. Um, he has a CV that, that lists dozens and dozens of peer-reviewed papers and presentations at scientific meetings and climate meetings. And he was actually nominated by President Bush and President Obama to serve on the National Science Board, which, which governs the National Science Foundation. Um, on the other hand, though, you know, not, not necessarily to make an odd ad hominem attack on Kelvin, but on the other hand, in terms of just where Trump's administration has been in general when it comes to science, in April, uh, one of his nominees, a Republican Congress member from Oklahoma, hedged on humanity's role in rising temperatures, and he was the nominee to lead NASA. Um, also, another nominee from the Texas Public Policy Foundation named Kathleen White withdrew her nomination to lead the White House Council on Environmental Quality in February of this year because in a radio interview, she said that um, any conversation around global warming or global threats is really just becoming a religion among the elites. And even um, previously uh, nominated or rumored picks by this president, um, including a Princeton physicist um, that 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 drew a liking by Trump, had said that there's not a problem, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, there's not a problem with carbon to sorry carbon dioxide emissions. And so I guess you know, with each of these nominees, uh, one could say that on the one hand, maybe these are just a series of unfortunate coincidences um, that Trump's team or, you know, per personnel office just poorly vetted along the way. On the other hand, we've seen a bit of a retreat from science by this administration, uh, certainly within contrast of, of the last administration, but really a retreat that's staggering that extends far beyond just Republican or Democrat, but really just keeping your, your staff of your science offices com completely anemic, uh, keeping this p top post vacant, um, encouraging different departments to overlook objective truths um, in pursuit of political convenience, um, you know, prioritizing things that are empirically noted to be difficult for the lungs like coal-based energy sources um, and deprioritizing things like more sustainable approaches just because it might impact certain sectors within the U.S. economy, which could be described as part of Trump's base. And so I, I'm curious if you kind of look at this contrast, you have a very serious uh, nominee in Kelvin uh, Dordermeyer up for Senate consideration. And on the other hand, you've got a president that hasn't really seemed to bear hug science or technology in any way. So with that very long-winded setup, I guess I'm curious, from where you sit as somebody that now, uh, having exited government, um, is still invested in scientific pursuits and investments in the climate that makes science and discovery possible, does this to you signal a, a straight up pivot from the president, from the administration to actually take science seriously and prioritize it? Or is the obstacle less about who's in the seat and more about the president himself and who he's willing or not willing to listen to? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I, I think we don't know yet. I think, um, you know, I've been uh, pretty consistently um, uh, sort of on the, on the position that the position of science advisor should be filled and that it's important for the science community to advocate for it being filled by someone who is both qualified to fill it 
and capable. Um, I think uh, the community, like it's been really surprising over that that we went 19 months without any nomination. Because uh, you have to remember that not only was the top position in OSTP and the science advisor position left open, but the four deputy positions are open, not, not even a single nomination. The CTO position, the chief technology officer position of the U.S. government, even while we have all these cyber attacks and everything else going on, uh, remained open. The, uh, you know, there's been a range of these kind of senior positions where there's not even been a nomination. And I think people sort of, and the analogy I always make is take other senior positions like the national security advisor. You know, there are people who, um, uh, uh, you know, experts in foreign policy might be really skeptical of in filling those roles, but they would be uh, even more alarmed if those positions were uh, totally empty. And I think the fact that it was being signaled that the science advisor position was kind of a nice to have, I think was, uh, isn't just not where things are. I mean, in the past uh, 19 months, we've seen uh, historic uh, flooding, whether it's in, uh, and, you know, damage from hurricanes, whether it's in Puerto Rico or in Texas, we've seen wildfires, we've seen the, uh, you know, the breakout of Ebola uh, uh, in abroad. I mean, major sort of problems and questions, and we've had multiple budget cycles. So um, I think this was a you know position that should have been filled, and I think the the scientific community is breathing a sigh of relief that um, you know Calvin Drogemeyer is well qualified. He's uh, you know uh, served as a scientist for many years, has strongly held and uh, and in the mainstream views on climate science as a climate scientist himself. He has spoken about the importance of investing in R&D. So I think he um, he's within the mainstream of uh, scientific thinking. And so I think that they breathe a sigh of relief because obviously the past 19 months have involved a lot of speculation that there might be somebody who, you know, actively dismisses climate science or, uh, as a possible pick. I think the, the broader context of the Trump administration's hostility towards science, I think, is still something that uh, we have to continue to work uh, uh, work against and remain sort of in place. And we'll see if the position uh, uh, being filled by a respected and noted scientist uh, changes that dynamic. But, you know, what we, what we sort of, when we, when the community sort of talks about um, this administration's hostility to science, it's actually, you know, four or five different things. And all of them are troubling in their own right. One of them is, that this administration, the Trump administration, has proposed historic cuts to uh, research and development funding. And so, you know, they were proposing uh, at one point, they, they pulled this back because Congress has been very, very uh, skeptical uh, on a bipartisan basis. But they proposed at one point a $7 billion cut to disease research. You know, that is not, uh, I don't think uh, anyone expected that, but you know, they were they proposed a elimination of all clean energy research programs. Um, so I think that's one area where uh, sort of this administration position R&D is way out of the mainstream, even uh, within the Republican Party. I think the second is scientists have been completely sidelined from uh, a series of major regulatory decisions, especially on the environment. You know, the EPA, uh, increasingly we're finding that um, the EPA is actively changing the way it runs uh, scientific uh, consultation so that the, the best science can't be used in regulatory matters because they have an actual uh, uh, broader uh, ideological agenda to just gut as many environmental regulations as possible. And I think that is deeply troubling, and lots of people are going to get hurt uh, when, we, uh, when we don't listen to what the science tells us about what are the air we breathe, the water we drink, the chemicals we put into the into the ground. And so I think that's a second big area, and it's a big open question as to what will happen on a forward-going basis. I think a third is, you know, there's a, there's a lot of concern about the geopolitics of science. You know, uh, both Russia and China have announced major um, sort of decade-long push to want to be the global leader in things like artificial intelligence. The way, you know, most people think uh, we should try to approach that is 
it's actually, um, you know, where, you know, it's the space race. We have to actually out-innovate uh, uh, the, you know, and, and to maintain a U.S. leadership in these fields. We actually have to invest in the R&D. We have to be magnets for talent and bring the best uh, researchers from around the world to want to do their research here and build their companies here. But instead, you know, we're sort of trying to uh, see if we can engage in a trade war uh, and see if we can uh, actively, you know, bat down the hatches. And that's how we're going to win this. And I think people are very skeptical as to whether that's going to allow us um, to be able to uh, sort of succeed on the international stage when it comes to national security. And then on, on these sort of national security questions. And then finally, I would just say that, you know, one of the big things that we just did was intersecting science technology across a range of policy areas from the environment to education to healthcare and elsewhere. And I think there's just been a lack of senior scientists and technologists inside the government has caused a major decrease in that. And so, you know, you've seen things like, you know, the administration proposing a decrease in, uh, you know, wildfire research. Well, you know, if you sort of look at the news over the past couple of weeks, that's probably not a good idea. And, you know, how much are we just um, not having people who have a deep expertise in this area making the decisions, I think, affects everything. So I think it's that it's that cumulative aspect that kind of adds up. That doesn't mean that there aren't uh, good career servants or folks who are, you know, such as, you know, Francis Collins at the NIH or others who are doing good work and continue to support good science, even in this current environment. But I think uh, it's important that the that if you care about science, that you're not just pointing at the few bright spots, but also point, pointing to all the many places where uh, science is getting actively sidelined because of ideological reasons. And I think that's incredibly well put because um, on the one hand, Regardless of your personal politics, it means very clear that Kelvin Jojemeyer is a, a strong scientist with a, a great track record and a thoughtful individual. And I think, regardless of whether anyone wants to Trump bash um, or you know be supportive of, of the president, um, we have to give credit where credit is due in terms of the pedigree and credentials of this nominee. At the same time, though, as you aptly said, there are these other systemic forces that are shaping not just our ability to make sure we're investing in the right things at the right time for our fellow Americans, but there's also an element of how America's identity and leadership in this space will be viewed um, and invested in from overseas and abroad. And I think that that is, is quite critical because if you take a look at some of those actions, when you mentioned cumulative actions, you know, a great set of examples include that uh, the president entered negotiations with North Korea over nuclear armaments um, without really any counsel from a senior nuclear physicist. And you'll, you'll recall that when the last administration went headstrong into those conversations uh, with uh, Iran, for example, um, even though the Secretary of State may have been a principal face to the media on how those negotiations were going, um, rare was there a meeting in which the Secretary of Energy um, did not participate in those meetings, you know, a scientist himself um, and an incredible one in, in, in his own right. Secondly, we saw this president withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement, for example, which again was to the objection of most climate scientists. So I think that shifting the conversation away from, you know, whether you prefer or despise this administration's approach to how it engages scientific thought in the community, um, we should be looking to, as you said, all of these tectonic forces that implicate not only targeted areas of investment um, like wildfire research or like precision medicine or like immuno immunology in the cancer space, um, but also do so in a way that is mindful of our very ability to compete, our ability to be able to attract talent, our ability to actually invest in the people that make discovery and curiosity possible and, and wonderful. And I, I, I wanted to, to summarize that note specifically by talking about this international landscape that you alluded to, um, because, you know, 
Earlier today, for example, we saw another declaration from this administration when it came to immigration. And I know that immigration policy is quite multifaceted, and there are lots of, of questions that maybe individuals, fellow Americans, fellow countrymen may have about the, the trickling in of immigration talent and what that might mean for their, their own income inequality, their own jobs, their own wages. And while that is an important conversation to have about American identity, one facet of that is our ability to recruit and retain the best and brightest from around the world. And while this morning's announcement was less so about scientific recruitment or H-1B visa recruitment, it does ladder up to this vision of the way that we set our principles and commitment to science in this country and the way that we set our commitments to ensuring we would have the best minds and the best university graduates come to this country really go hand in hand. And your office, including some of your extraordinary colleagues um, like Tom Khalil, like Doug Rand, like Dr. Holdren um, at the top, uh, also used the perch of uh, the Office of Science and Tech Policy to make sure that we were recruiting those minds from around the world. And I was just wondering if you could double click a little bit more on that notion. Is it important that someone in a science and technology role or specifically a policy role also be mindful of how we're able to recruit and maintain borders that allow those talented minds to come to the U.S.? Or if you were to give guidance to this new science nominee, Kelvin Jodramire, would you actively advise him to stay out of that? Are those important to be coupled or for the sake of the optics and the politics of this president and someone being set up for success or failure under this president? Is it important for them to stay away from that debate? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's a great question. I think, you know, my general advice for uh, Dr. Drogemeyer would be to, um, you know, uh, speak truth uh, uh, and to uh, make sure that you're getting a chance to be at the table and to, um, you know, not... Um, and to, and to keep an eye towards the long term. And so I think on all of those, it's important that, uh, uh, that immigration and the intersection between immigration and science plays an important role. So I'll just give you a few examples. So, you know, um, obviously there's a ton of coverage that has happened on the, the Muslim ban and, uh, and, uh, and the extensive, uh, actions by this administration, uh, to limit uh, you know, travel between certain countries in the United States. Well, that has a huge implication on science as well. So if you're a scientist in any of those countries that wants to come to an academic conference in the U.S., um, uh, you basically can't and have not been able to come for the past 19 months. You know, that's caused major disruptions in parts of the scientific community. Uh, if you are uh, a student that wants to uh, come to the United States as a foreign student and study here, uh, those numbers have markedly dropped in the past 19 months. Now, a lot of those students are actually STEM students. And if you actually look at some of our high growth industries, a lot of those students come here, get their PhD or get their master's and then stay here um, and become part of the U.S. economy. They help create their own companies. So if you look at um, the fastest growing companies out of Silicon Valley or the ones that have uh, a rapidly growing market share. A lot of them are immigrant-founded. Uh, and so, you know, this becomes a huge source of our uh, economic potential that people around the world see America as a beacon. I want to come here. They want to study here. They want to build companies here. They want to work for companies here. And they want to create uh, uh, jobs. And so, you know, this is, you know, I, I came to this country as an immigrant when I was uh, eight years old. And, you know, one of the amazing things about it is that, um, you know, you get to grow up in this country and feel like it's yours. And I think a lot of what this administration is doing is creating a sense of active alienation by the immigrant community about whether America is there. And that, you know, that makes it much harder for those immigrants to assimilate and to be part of both America as a fabric, but also America as an economy that they can contribute towards. That I actually didn't realize that that you also came to this country. Where did you your family come from? Uh, so we are from India, and so my mom is from Delhi, uh, which is the capital, and my dad is from Punjab. 
Oh, okay. Okay. We left, yeah. and we left when we were uh, when I was eight. Yeah, and I I think to be honest with you, not to to blow smoke up your ass or anything, but to be honest with you, I think our country is better off for for your family and and your arrival in it because one thing that you were able to do um quite creatively um alongside a number of colleagues um both as you said both political appointees of the president as well as um tireless career civil servants was really put together an interesting playbook for how you execute a strategy for american innovation um you know this certainly ranged from everything from strengthening the research and development or r&d tax credit to as you even referenced earlier intellectual property reforms um even getting large bureaucratic agencies to commit to releasing more data in a way that third parties could use and manipulate and draw insights from and even build new industries um to even exporting and helping smaller startups or companies compete overseas there was a lot of work that you guys put together and I'm curious sort of what you thought elements of that secret sauce were. In, in particular, I know the, the White House really championed public-private partnerships in certain announcements. For example, you know, if you were doing something related to autonomous vehicles and a new um, regulatory structure through the Department of Transportation, there may also be a component to the announcement that talks about upskilling trade uh, workers who might be uh, auto mechanics or conversant at poking around under the hood of a car, but now maybe need to get plugged into educational resources to become conversant around poking under the hood of an operating system. And so pairing these interesting concepts of being both pro-science and both technological progress, but also with sort of policy overtures that were mindful of the downstream impacts of that progress became uh, quite the hallmark of, of the White House science team, um, particularly through these documents that we that would look like press releases, but we internally called fact sheets. And they were um, infused with commitments from private sector companies about what they were going to do and what the government was going to do. Uh, there's probably a lot there, but is there any way you could tell our audience how a science playbook gets stitched together when you are in the White House um, so at a minimum our new nominee can take note? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we kind of, um, this was definitely like learning by doing, but we kind of, um, it was a playbook that we created over time. And it started with an idea that President Obama had, which he talked about in some of his earliest speeches, which is our problems are too big for the federal government to handle alone. And so he sort of very early on said, like, you know, it's the, the big we of uh, that we have to sort of build. So we have to say, hey, if we're trying to make progress on getting more uh, young kids excited and prepared in math, science, and the STEM field, obviously there's things that the federal government can do, the Department of Education can do through its grants that we can do through the National Science Foundation. But what, you know, what can every day, uh, what can the 25 largest professional societies of science technologists, which have millions of members, that want to pay it forward and get the next generation ready. What could they do? What could the largest companies in the countries do in the areas in which they're located? What can educational leaders do? What can, um, uh, you know, sort of nonprofits and uh, new emerging companies do? And so we took that to heart and we started sort of very deliberately to say, you know, we should be, whenever we sort of approach a policy area, we should think about, the specific steps that the federal agencies can be taking or we could be taking as a policy area, but we should actually widen the aperture and say like, um, you know, and just go through an imagine if exercise, like who are the most important players in the space? And if they stepped up, what could, what could stepping up look like? And then, you know, you call them up and you say, Hey, have you guys thought about doing something like this? Or sometimes they reach out to you. But the amazing thing is that like, uh, the worst thing they can say is no. Uh, and we were able to build really impactful partnerships. So um, early on inside the administration, we did this with, uh, you know, how do we get more Americans tapped into entrepreneurship and more Americans that want to start their own company can do that. Um, and so we said, okay, well, let's, um, you know, let's go find the, uh, what. let's figure out what are the, the biggest impediments to doing that. So one of those impediments is 
you know, access to capital and being able to have access to capital in a range of communities. And so in a number of places, you know, large companies actually want to build pipelines of smaller companies that they can build high quality partnerships with and provide them early risk capital. So we helped organize, you know, these sort of big co, little co collaboratives where bigger companies were actually providing seed capital to new entrepreneurs or, you know, in some instances, you know, uh, um, you know, mayors and cities can actually provide uh, support to new entrepreneurs by just making it easier for them to get their new business started. So we call that startup in a day, which is, you know, reduce all your business regulations into a clean package so that someone could actually start their company in a single day. You know, and then we ask, we challenge mayors to sort of take on that call. And so for most of our ideas, we would talk to all the smartest people in the space and say, and what's the overall to-do list look like? And then we would say, okay, let's see who all could step up against that. And, you know, you're totally right. We would, you know, in these fact sheets or these press releases we would put out associated with some event or associated, we would have the section, which is, you know, Department of Education will, Department of Commerce will, you know, and those were our, our announcements. But we also had a whole section of what everyone else was stepping up to do. And, you know, this sort of commitments model ended up being, a you know, just a core part of how we got things done. But I actually think it made our, our work more impactful and richer because, you know, you sort of tried to think about the whole problem, not just, oh, well, we, we're not going to think about that because the federal government has no easy way to operate on that. And I think that, you know, whether you have that playbook put together while serving in a government post um, or if you have that notion of how you can stitch together different parties, different partnerships and different actions to drive policy or really just create the environment that's ripe for um, you know technological growth or scientific discovery, uh, it, it would appear that to give anyone listening to this hope that America still remains at the cutting edge um, of science, of technology, of innovation, it would appear that this is still a time in which even if you're outside of a government post um, and you are you know, a private tinkerer in a lab as a private citizen or you're a high school student that's you know, filling out college apps shortly, interested in majoring in molecular cell biology or in data science, that the time is still ripe to bring that playbook, bring those strategies to play, to continue to advance America's position in this space. Is that an overly rosy or optimistic assumption? Or now that you've stepped out of government life um, and into a more private role, are you still able to to see progress across those strategies that were so effective for you in the past? Yeah, no, I think, I think the role for collective action, the role for the social sector, the role for people working together on a shared mission is, is more important than ever. Um, I think, you know, government is, especially the federal government in, in a number of these conversations is, a uh, is, is basically, has walked off the field, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that there's not a ton that um, cities, that uh, companies, that individual uh, activists and others can do to make progress on this. And I'll so one example I'll give is and uh, one of the initiatives that we started was called Computer Science for All. It was focused on you know the fact that you know in 75% of U.S. classrooms in the United States. Uh, computer uh, schools, uh, computer science is not offered right now. This is even though, you know, 90% of parents want their child to at least have the option of learning computer science. And that huge gap, you know, impacts uh, low-income parents, impacts, uh, you know, uh, sort of high-need schools the most. And so we launched this big campaign. Uh, we had a federal component with the federal government investing more dollars. But we also called on governors and mayors and others to step up to expand access to computer science education. You know, that's a campaign we started in the president's last day of the union, and we had a lot of success in its final year in 2016. But that campaign has continued to grow uh, in 2017 and 2018. So now there's a nonprofit called computerscienceforall.org. It's got more than 400 members. It did a big summit um, in St. Louis last year. Its upcoming summit is in October in Detroit. You know, we've seen... Uh, in the computer science movement overall, you know, more than 40 states take some sort of action in support of computer science. 
and you know more than a dozen states have actually changed their laws to allow computer science to count towards graduation. And this is you know this is really growing, and it's happening. Um, you know, it's happening with a lot of local activism because people think that you know our young kids should be empowered with the tools of the future, and that you know with everything that you're learning about you know algorithms and uh, algorithmic bias and everything else around you know, technology sort of controlling your life, it's it's important that we empower our kids, even as citizens, to understand that technology on a deeper level. So that's, you know, I think there's a ton of room for someone who wants to give back, whether you want to participate in the National Day of Civic Hacking that's coming up, or in helping a kid learn coding, or helping, you know, uh, test your local communities, being a citizen scientist and testing the lead in your community's water, or anything else. I think there's a ton of room to take direct action, but then also to be part of the larger efforts to, um, you know, make sure science technology is is brought to the best use of our public good. And p- part of that best use of the public good, I think, is maintaining a good face and a good commitment to that science. And I kind of just want to conclude um, with a with a hint of of not just optimism, but the fact that that community of scientists and those that are willing to invest in science um, still remains quite strong. And I think that was on display um, quite remarkably last year for an event that um, you and and others uh, organized and participated in. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm getting this titling wrong, but it essentially amounted to a march uh, for science and in pursuit of defending scientific uh, policymaking and, and data data-driven research. And it, it came on the heels of a few kind of disheartening announcements. I mean, you know, you, you referred earlier recruiting the best and brightest, and the administration wanted to rescind the international entrepreneurial rule, which would help, you know, startup founders, for example, um, have a fast-track visa. Um, it comes on the heels of the president, which annually, regardless of who you are and what party you're in, annually gives out a national medal for science and technology to incredible game-changing uh, scientific minds, including inventors of everything from uh, post-it notes to the uh, to the modern SLR camera, camera to the digital camera, um, true true inventive minds. And when you see this drip and drab of a disheartening news that is rooted in our ability to compete in science, last year we saw a march on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., with with you and other leading minds in the space, um, standing up for a celebration of that science and that um, d- exactly for what you just said a moment ago, that regardless of the overtures now and regardless of the politics, we will continue to be committed uh, to investments and to safeguarding the, the very notion of discovery that has mer- made America's story and experiment possible in the first place. I'm just wondering if you could kind of wrap us up by reflecting on what that march felt like and and what it actually means in terms of each of us as citizens that may not be scientists in our day-to-day lives and may actually find elements of science quite complex and hard to grasp. But the obligation that we have as Americans, no matter our profession um, or our work life day-to-day, to stand up for that science as being core to America's identity. Yeah, no, I think, you know, it was incredibly inspiring, you know, not only you know, they eventually, as good scientists will do, they eventually did a deep data dive on figuring out all the elements of the march, and they found that more than a million people participated. Um, and, you know, I think what was inspiring, especially for me, was that even outside D.C., they had more than, I think, 500 locations around the country and the world that participated that day. And, you know, really small places um, that uh, where, you know, you had just a few people doing it, but just sort of show the breadth and of the sentiment that people expressed. But I think, you know, the, the amazing thing about the the march was that it has spawned a range of sort of folks who want to make sure that, you know, it's the John Holdren line, which is, if you're not uh, at the table, you're probably on the menu <laughs> as a sort of adage of politics, which is that, you know, how do we make sure that science is being uh, part of the political discourse and scientists are part of the political discourse so that um, uh, these issues are being discussed in a in a fact-based way. And so you've seen organizations that are helping recruit a range of candidates across the country that have scientific backgrounds. And we've seen uh, many of them run, which I think has been inspiring because these are first-time candidates who 
haven't done this before, but are uh, are doing the hard work of actually going out there, hitting the street, and talking about why this is important. You've seen like organizations like uh, Science Debate go out there and try to get every candidate that's running to answer a questionnaire on major science topics. You've seen, um, you know, lots of effort to sort of just, you know, uh, sort of increase the capacity of science technology policy on the Hill. And so there's a effort now to revive the Office of Technology Assessment, which got uh, killed by Newt Gingrich back in 1994 because, you know, science and his view was that science and tech was, uh, you know, they were, uh, Congress didn't need its own uh, internal division that was helping them give them good science and tech advice, which a lot of folks now consider a big mistake given everything. You know, if you watch the most recent Facebook hearing, I feel like Congress could use a little help. On science <laughs> Absolutely. And tech. Um, Absolutely. So I think there's a huge surge in interest and action to, to kind of bring, you know, as Megan Smith sometimes, like bring up the tech quotient in our conversations and say, you know, if you leave the science and tech out, you're not helping anybody uh, make better decisions. And I think that's inspiring that the kind of past 18 months have, have caused a lot more people to step forward and say, these kind of connections really matter. And I think I would sort of urge your audience and listeners to, you know, find, uh, find those local conversations, whether it's a local community board, whether it's a local campaign, and just and just engage and show up. And I think that's what will make the conversation healthier and better. That's beautifully put. And I think that um, regardless of, of this president, as you said earlier, um, to the extent that uh, Kelvin, George Meyer actually is in the room and making sure that he too raises his hand um, and, and makes the concerted case for facts and science. Um, hopefully we will continue to, to lead as a country and to say nothing else for the fact that his name is Kelvin, which is a unit of uh, on the thermodynamic temperature scale. So truly a scientist through and through. Kumar Garg, thank you so much for sharing your insights. Thank you for your service to the scientific and innovative community. And thanks for joining American Enough. No, thank you. Thanks for, um, it was a great conversation. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.